Well, welcome to City Life. Uh, Anthony may mention, let's be praying for Susan, but can we just pray for her right now? Um, Dean, if you could stand up, I will gladly put you on the spot, Dean. I love you. <laughs> if you guys want to gather around Dean, if we could lay hands on Dean and pray for Susan now. Lord God, we thank you for Susan. We thank you for their family. We thank you for the legacy, the ridiculous legacy we see in this church of their son and daughter, their grandkids, and, and what they mean to City Life and what they've meant to City Life for a, a decade, Lord God. And God, we pray right now, God, that, that Susan will be richly blessed in this season where she's been in this accident, she's, she's caught this lump, Lord God, that in this season, God, I pray that your, your spirit would be with her, that tonight she wouldn't feel isolated, tonight she wouldn't feel uh, set apart from this, her family of faith. God, I even just think in Exodus where Moses is praying and the spirit's falling on these men to prophesy and it falls to men in various areas of the camp and, and it confused people because they weren't with the group, Lord God. I pray that the same way, even right now your spirit will fall on Susan. Whatever's going on at the hospital, God, she would feel your presence, feel your peace, feel your very physical comfort, God, but that she too, as we were singing, would become more aware of your presence in her room, God, and we pray for a quick recovery. God, we thank you for the way we've already seen your hand with not two surgeries, but one surgery. God, with the favor we're already seeing, God, I just pray that this would somehow be a testimony of your goodness, God, and we thank you for Dean and the husband he is and the pillar of strength he is, and continue to give him grace. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. So we are a family here at City Life Suffolk. Uh, but if you're relatively new here, maybe you don't know, we are one church with two locations. So there's City Life Church and there's a campus here in Suffolk, but there's also a campus in Newport News. And if you've been coming here for maybe the last quarter or so, you know that there has been an update in Newport News. Uh, lots of big things going on in Newport News at that campus. One of those things being uh, they're looking to launch a preschool early in 2019. Um, and part of that, and the update I want to give tonight is two people that some of us know and love, maybe some of you don't recognize outside of these announcement videos, but Jordan Johnson and Katie Walls are being brought onto staff for that purpose. This is like a proud former youth pastor moment because they used to be in the youth ministry when I was pastoring there. But it's going to be a huge blessing to the church um, and to the staff. So that's a big announcement for City Life as a whole. But if you didn't know, they're launching a, a preschool early 2019 for, I believe it's 25 full-time students, two and a half to five years old, there at the Newport News campus. I think the Facebook page launches in November. They're starting registration then. But you guys can be praying for that and pray blessing on them as they, they're going to be serving. I'm going to be seeing them in the office. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm excited because I've known them for years. Some of you know them for years. So if you've got their numbers in your phone, text them, let them know you love them, you're excited for them, and thank them for serving the church. But... We've been in a series here in Suffolk for some time that we're simply calling the Autumn on the Mount because we're working our way bit by bit, verse by verse, passage by passage through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've spoke again and again, and we've pointed to the Old Testament. And it's funny that Greg made this from the Leviticus series because back in Exodus and Leviticus, we see God revealing who he is, his character, and his holiness to the Israelites. For the first time, really, to a whole group of people explaining who he is, what his purpose is through them. And then we see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus is again revealing himself, God in the flesh and his nature and the purpose of his kingdom to his followers. And as we've explained, by this point in his sermon, his followers are probably looking at each other and thinking, this isn't exactly what we anticipated. This isn't totally who we thought he was. 
Kind of like in, in movies where characters show up and there's a, a 180, like when Arnold shows up in Terminator 2. You don't know if he's there to save somebody or, or destroy stuff, and you find out things. What is it? Severus Snape in, in Harry Potter does a, a 180. Um, Godzilla, let's be serious, starts out as a destroyer of all things, and then he's like protector of the earth. That's quite the 180. Um, but that's all pop culture. There's times in real life where people say things and do things, and you think, oh, you're different than I thought you were. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But as we've talked about with Jesus, they were a part of a culture that for a long time had viewed this Messiah figure as somebody that was going to have political power and military might and was going to help overthrow the Roman culture that was oppressing them in, in physical persecution. But as we looked at, Jesus begins this entire sermon with the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he introduces this upside-down kingdom that's probably a little bit different than what they were looking for. Because he says things, among other Beatitudes, like blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are even the persecuted. Right? And we talked about how the Beatitudes show us what he's looking for in the character of his disciples. And then the week after that, we looked at this image of salt and light and how it's, he speaks to the influence we're supposed to have as his disciples and his followers. We're not just supposed to be good people. We're supposed to be good for something. We're called to have influence and purpose in this life. And then last week, we began to look at how Jesus digs into the righteousness of the disciple. And last week, we looked at how he looks at these Old Testament laws, these do nots, like do not murder, right? do not uh, commit adultery. And he looks at the external application in that religious system that was missing the heart and motive beneath. And he introduces this idea of the inside-out kingdom, where God wants to change. It's not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That his kingdom advances in hearts as our hearts are changed, and that begins to change our life. So we saw last week that it's not just the action, it's not just the prohibition, but it's the motive that matters. Not just the do's and do nots, but the heart behind the action that truly matters. And last week we looked again at the, at the do nots, but Jesus begins in chapter 6, where we'll start tonight. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under your pew. But in chapter 6, he begins to speak on three specific uh, instances of doing good. That if you're following Christ, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, the disciple of Jesus Christ, you'll be doing. And we know this because each, with each of the three, he says, not if you, but when you do each of these three things. What are the three things? The first is giving, specifically to the poor, right? Living a lifestyle of generosity. The second is prayer, which we'll dig deep into tonight. And the third is fasting. So Jesus is saying, when you do these things, and he calls them acts of righteousness. In our church culture, in our modern times, you might hear them called spiritual disciplines. Here at City Life, you might hear them called pathways because we believe, if you're, again, if you're following Christ, walking the path of following him, these are three out of 12 things you'll be doing. Giving we simply call generosity, but prayer and fasting, those are in the pathways. And there should be no doubt about whether or not we step in them. Again, Jesus says, when you do these things. But what's up for debate and what Jesus digs into and what we don't know, even if you're doing them, is what's your motive? What's your heart behind what you're doing? And we've, we've dug into this word before, but Jesus again uses the word hypocrites, which again in the Greek speaks to actors. And he says of them that these people that do these three things for the praise of other people, right, they've received their reward. Saying the reward to come in heaven, that's not for them. 
but this is nothing against actors. Let's be clear. Like, I've got a man crush on Tom Hardy. Uh, when I was in college, there's nobody I wanted to be more than Maximus Decimus Meridius, Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator. There's nothing wrong with actors. There's nothing wrong with actresses. But the nature of actors is that they have an audience. And we've got film, we've got Hollywood, we've got movie theaters, but at that time, in Jesus' time, actors, they had a live audience. They were performing on a stage. They had a platform. And in our culture, we like having a platform. This isn't to diss social media, but we like to build an audience, have a platform, and then earn their appreciation, their approval, their likes, their shares. Not just social media, but in life in general. It wasn't just a, a problem created by social media. This is a problem Jesus was speaking to in his time and in his culture. And what Jesus is essentially telling his followers that, yes, while we're called to live in community, and while we're called to be this, this city on a hill and this light that's not hidden, he says at the same time, really everything you do in life should be for an audience of one. Not for the approval, the praise, and the reward of man, but for the approval, the praise, and the reward of God our Father. And specifically, he says of prayer, he says in this passage, don't be like those who pray in the synagogue and street corners to be seen by others. So for some people... Well, let me just tell the story. Years back in Newport News, I believe we, it was just that campus, we did public prayer, various places in Newport News, and then we had dinner afterwards. But I remember somebody, just a very, I appreciated the question, right, because they were struggling with the word. They, they were honestly asking, well, isn't that a problem? Because doesn't Jesus say not to pray on the street corners, but to go into your prayer closet? And it's a decent question because they know the word, they're grappling with the word. But I reminded them just verses before this, Jesus says, hey, don't take your light and hide it. And I encourage them because Jesus, he says here, don't do that to be seen by others. Again, it's about your motive. It's about your heart. And Jesus is speaking to deeper issues of the heart, of our motives. And here's the application. When our hearts are timid, when we're thinking, yeah, I don't really want anybody to know about my faith, that's when you apply, don't hide your light under a basket, because Jesus teaches this to combat the sin of cowardice. But when your hearts are full of self-righteousness, and you're thinking, yeah, I'd love to pray in front of people and them to see how well I pray and, and to appreciate who I am, then that's when you apply pray in private, because Jesus teaches this to combat the sin of pride. I heard it, this juxtaposition taught so simply and profoundly in this simple phrase, Show when you're tempted to hide, hide when you're tempted to show. Show when you're tempted to hide, hide when you're tempted to show. Because again, Jesus, he's talking about your heart. He's talking about your motives. And here he's talking about two motivating factors. One, cowardice, and the other, pride. Jesus is speaking. Do you seek the praise of man or do you seek the praise of God? Which reward do you pursue? And it's interesting the way he phrases them because one, he says, they have received their reward. The other says, your father in heaven will, will reward you. And really in life, when we want our rewards, we want our gratification, we don't want it delayed, right? I would rather that I've received it, I've got it, than have to wait till heaven to get it. And yes, there's ways that God blesses us in this life, but for the most part, you know, we want our, our gratification now. And really, it's a, a problem of perspective because we like the tense of our first, the present tense, I've got my reward. And this is emphasized as Jesus continues to teach on prayer because we often go to prayer for provision. I need something. And hear me out, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. 
As Jesus continues to preach this Sermon on the Mount, he gets to where he says, ask, seek, knock, right? You're asking, you're seeking God for things. But we can so easily slip into thinking that the sum total of prayer and the end game of prayer is to get from God what I need. Jesus pinpoints that when he says, uh, again, before he jumps into the Our Father, he says, God knows what you need before you even pray. And something I grappled with, and again, questions I've received, is why pray if God already knows everything you need, if he's already sovereign, he's already loving, he's already in control, and he knows every one of your needs, why even go to him and ask? And again, this is something I grappled with when I would read this scripture, but the underlying confession of this question, why pray if God already knows what you need, the confession of your heart you make when you ask that question is I think the sole purpose of prayer is to get what I need from God. If God knows what I need, why pray? Adoration, worship, thanksgiving and gratitude, repentance. Look, if repentance was the only reason I went to God in prayer, I would still be praying constantly for eternity, right, every day of my life. If adoration was the only reason you went to God in prayer, worship, then you would have enough reason to worship and pray continually to the end of your days and all through eternity. Every one of those reasons is reason to pray. And Jesus teaches his disciples to adopt these perspectives as he gives him the, the, the model prayer. And it's gone down in history as the Lord's Prayer. But perhaps an even more apt title would be the Disciples' Prayer, the prayer of the disciple, because this is the prayer Jesus gives his disciples, the framework for their prayer life. Really a framework for following Jesus because, again, it, it's daily perspective. And as we'll look at tonight, every phrase in the Our Father is like an inventory where you can check your heart and where it is. You know, in the first, probably the first one or two years of the church when we were still in the movie theater and uh, there was a week where the church as a whole was covering 24 hours in prayer the entire time. So you would sign up for a time slot. I was young at the time and reckless, so I signed up for 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. I was like, somebody's got to do it, right? I learned real quick what it was like to be the disciples in the garden when Jesus was like, pray with me for an hour. You couldn't do that without falling asleep? Yeah, try doing it from 3 to 4 a.m. And I never fell asleep, and, and people asked me, well, what did you do? Because, you know, what are you doing to pray for an hour? How are you doing it? I would work my way through the Our Father. And maybe you think, well, the Our Father takes 45 seconds to pray. So what, did you pray like 4,000 times? No, because the Our Father, this prayer that Jesus gives us, it's not meant to be stringent. It's meant to be a, a stimulant, really. The value goes beyond recitation. Even though there's value in reciting it, this week I've been praying it a lot. It's more than just recitation. It's a model for greater prayer. Each phrase, again, is a framework. It's a launching pad. And then again, in each phrase, we take inventory of our hearts. So I, before I even start working through the phrases, I want to read it together. I'll put it on the screen. It says, this then is how you should pray. Let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's power in every one of those words. And the first two words he gives us are our Father. And just as we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount, it's beautiful, it's significant that the Sermon on the Mount starts with the word blessed. That of all the words he could have started with, blessed. God's grace comes first. And there's so much power in the fact that in the Our Father, the first two words we get are Our Father. 
And what it teaches us is that prayer is not first and foremost about requests. Prayer is first about relationship. And each one of those words teaches us a different thing about how prayer is about relationship. Because first, the first word we get is our. And we see that prayer is the language of community. Yes, it's a personal thing we do, but it's also corporate. If it was just about, if my prayer life was just about me and God, the prayer would be my Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. But it's our Father. You work your way throughout the whole prayer, and the pronouns again and again are our, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Not just my daily bread. Right? Forgive us our trespasses. Not just my trespasses. It's a total rabbit trail, but some of my beef with, with worship these days is the pronoun is always me, myself, and I. I love a worship song that throws a good us in there, right? Uh, our, right? Just like the Our Father because, yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, Jesus died for me. But it was so we could step into this corporate being, the body of Christ, the family of faith. And that our Father reminds us of this. You have a personal relationship with God, but it's not meant to be a private one. It's meant to be part of community. And what unites us, it's not uniformity, right? It's not everybody looking the same, sounding the same, praising the same, singing the same. Thank goodness, because some of us can't. But the thing that unifies us is our one Father, our Father. And that's the second word that teaches us about relationship. The hour pointing to community and father points to our relationship with God. You know, in the culture that Jesus walked in, some people wouldn't even utter the name of God. They had such respect for it. And a lot of times in that culture, God would feel distant. Even just within the temple, right, the, the veil was there that separated us from his presence. You know, last week I recommended uh, Yancey's Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey, because it's got multiple chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. Another good book, if you're working through this idea of God being our father, Brennan Manning, it's called Abba's Child, The Cry of the Heart for Intimate Belonging. I think it came out in like 94, but it's a great book, powerful book. And one of my favorite quotes in this book is when he says, define yourself as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. You know, the quality of your life in a whole lot of ways is going to be determined by your vision of God, how you see God. Because that vision will inform your identity. And our culture is starving for identity, hungry for identity. Yet every other identity is an illusion that can't fill that void. But, you know, here's the difficulty with this for many of us is that our own biological fathers have impacted our view of God. You know, for some of us, calling God Father or singing good, good Father, it doesn't, you know, we don't feel warm fuzzies, right? For some of us, it makes us wince. Because for some of us, the earthly picture of fatherhood is not one we framed and held on to. Sometimes the image he's given us to behold his love is the same image that keeps us from stepping into it. But if that's you, I would encourage you. Our, our earthly fathers... Yes, they were meant to be training wheels that would propel us into this relationship with God as our, our father. But the good news is that God isn't a replica of our fathers. He's the original. God the father into eternity. And ultimately, he's not our earthly father. He is what Isaiah calls the everlasting father. And his love is intimate. It's like the love of a perfect father. It's unconditional. It longs to know and be known. And again, as we were closing worship, just asking God to give us a revelation of his love, I can't think about it enough. The fact that the God who created the universe wants intimate relationship with me. That blows my mind daily. 
right, to think that the God who created the universe, that knows every of the billions of people on earth by name, cares about each one, cares about me, wants a relationship with me. That should blow your mind, right? But Father also speaks to another aspect of this relationship. We're not equals. Raj isn't going to grow up calling me Justin, you know, I've seen that in some family dynamics, but Roger's going to call me. He's got options. He's not going to call me by my first name. He can call me dad, pops, father, whatever he wants, but he's not going to call me Justin. He definitely not call me Juice. <laughs> because it's not because our relationship is somehow shallow. No, it's because there's a great depth to our relationship. There's a beauty to the relationship of father and son. I have a relationship with my son that he doesn't have with anybody else. And it's because I'm his father. That doesn't lessen the relationship. It gives it greater depth. But no, we're not equals. I remind him of that because he's three, (laughs) right? There's a beautiful father-son dynamic. And this word Abba that Jesus uses here, it's, it's profound because it unlocks intimacy with our father who is in heaven. Yeah, he's far away, but he's also here, and he wants to be intimate. But this isn't a chummy relationship with God. This isn't us best buds with God. You know, that Jesus is your homeboy, where we picture he's always shotgun with us, high-fiving us no matter what turn we make in life. No, the same way I want obedience from Raj, guess what? God wants obedience from us. Just verses before this in Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Echoing those words in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Yes, God wants to be intimate in relationship with you, but don't forget, he's also holy, high and lifted up, exalted, glorified, and infinite. And that's why the second phrase is so powerful, hallowed be your name. Some of you are thinking hallowed, like, that's what I just did to the pumpkin this week. Like, what are we talking about here when I emptied it out to carve it? But the word hallowed, means to be held as holy, greatly respected, and glorified. So this phrase is speaking to God's glory. Is he profoundly intimate? Yes, but the other side of the coin is that he is infinitely powerful. I've been reading through Isaiah for a while now. It's a long book, all right, give me a break. But I was in Isaiah 40 this week, and uh, Isaiah 40, I loved it because it's kind of like, the, it's a pendulum. It swings from, I want to be, you know, profoundly intimate to, hey, just remember, I'm infinitely powerful. Like, here's some examples. This is the opening verse of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Then shout that people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. Back to intimacy. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Pendulum swings back. All the nations in the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. But then it closes with the famous verses that speak to his intimacy again, that he gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. So we got, we're like sheep. Oh, we're also like grasshoppers. But then when we wait on him, we can be like eagles, right? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Shout that the people are like grass. There's these different pictures we get all in one chapter, all in one breath from the prophet Isaiah. But like we talked about a few summers ago now, this idea that, hey, God's big enough for both. May our picture of God, our view of God be big enough for both, that, yes, he's infinitely powerful, but he also wants to be profoundly intimate with each one of us. And that should blow our mind. If he wanted to be one of those, that's good. The fact he's both, that's amazing. 
It's incredible. It's fantastic. Isaiah 57, 15 puts it all together in one sentence. It's God speaking. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So he's high. He's holy. He's exalted. He's lifted up. Don't get that twisted. Yet, as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit and lowly because he's with them. Both. Big enough for both. But then we also see, and it's important to recognize, that the first request we have here in the Our Father is that God will be glorified. May you be glorified. May you be hallowed. You know, if I'm honest, I can confess that in my prayer, I skip way too quick to the daily bread, right? I skip to the Lord, give me this, I need that, right? Give me this day, my daily bread. But this shows that our prayers shouldn't flow primarily from my needs, but from his name. You know, there should be moments in prayer where our ego melts to reverence, where our hearts feel awe, where we say, may your, your name and your glory be the first desire of my heart, right? And he just taught, don't be like the hypocrites. Because, again, they live for their own glory. They have their stage. They have their audience. My goals, my dreams, my needs, my wants, my likes, my shares, whatever. Again, not to diss social media. But sociologists have identified what it doesn't take much discernment uh, to notice this rise in narcissism in our culture. See me, recognize me, affirm me, desire me. And this is natural in every one of us. And the reason deep down we feel this is we want to be seen, recognized, affirmed, and desired by God. That's what we're chasing. The desire that drives this is our need to be seen by God. And when we receive validation as a son or a daughter radically loved by God, we can shift our perspective. What does your perspective shift to? Well, the next phrase is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this speaks to renewal. You know, we talked last week in Romans 12, it speaks to renewing your mind. And as your mind is renewed and filled more and more by God, your concerns become his concerns. Your kingdom agenda, or his kingdom agenda, becomes more and more our agenda and our priorities. What's the fruit of this in the life of a disciple? Listen, we'll become more concerned with God's kingdom coming here to earth than we are focused on going to heaven. So often in the church, the end game, the focus as a believer is, I want my name in the book of life and be able to check the box that I'm going to heaven. We focus on the reward of salvation, but we don't focus on the work. Right? We love Ephesians 2 where it says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. Right? Not by works, right? Read the next verse. So that we can do the works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Right? There's a purpose. There's a work for us to do. It's making God's kingdom come here on earth. You know, I used to have a tradition as a bachelor and I have a wife, a son, and really a life. But I used to, every Good Friday, watch The Passion of Christ. That'll, that'll shake you. That'll shift your perspectives, watching the, the Passion of Christ on Good Friday. And, and as a man, right, you're trying not to cry the whole movie. Especially, I mean, you're in a, alone in a room, but still, as a man, you're like, ah. But then there's a scene. He's carrying the cross. He falls, and the women of Jerusalem come to him, and he looks one of them in the eyes, and he says, behold, I make all things new. Every time I watch that movie, like the waterworks just turn on there. Can't help it. But, you know, that's artistic license, most likely. We don't know that Jesus said that. It's not recorded that he said that while carrying the cross. But he did say it. Just where it is, it's turned the pages quite a bit in Revelation. It's in Revelation 21 where John has this vision of heaven and is spoken from the throne room of heaven. Behold, I make all things new. But what's powerful 
is that it's not just heaven. It says in Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That Yeah, there's going to be heaven, but, but earth is going to be renewed. But you know what happens when heaven is the only focus and we forget about earth? You can become silent about what's going on here on earth. Abuse, injustice, slavery. I'm all right. I'm going to heaven. Right? Our focus is just on heaven. But God's kingdom wants to come to earth. He wants to begin the work of renewing earth now through his church, through us. But so often we don't let it worry us because we're going to heaven. And look, this is a complex issue. But this is part of why you can get, I think it was 4,400 pastors signing an anti-social justice proclamation with a straight face and a good conscience. Because we can get focused in that way. And they would probably pray the same prayer that we have. One of the oldest prayers we have recorded in Christianity, Maranatha, means come God. Come Lord Jesus, come. Sometimes that's my, literally my first thought when I see a headline in our culture. I'm like, God, just come back so we don't have to deal with this anymore. And I think sometimes when we pray, your kingdom come, it's really just like, God, come fix this. And he's asking us, why don't you work to fix this? Why, why aren't you doing the work as the church to fix this. We say all the time when we talk about prayer, don't ask if you're not ready to act. People are like, hey, man, pray. I'm looking for a job. Have you worked on your resume yet? No. Dude, <laughs> how about you work on that resume and work on getting your butt off the couch with a tie on to go do some interviews? Or like, I'm, I'm praying, I'm wishing for a better financial situation. Have you worked on your budget, right? Don't ask if you're not ready to act. Our prayer life, we've got such good wishbones, but we need a backbone with it, right? Don't just wish. Be ready to work. What's the basis of kingdom work? Why do I say all that? Kingdom work is looking at heaven, right? God's perfect reign, his perfect rule. What are things like in heaven? Bring that here. In heaven, there's peace, so we work towards peace. In heaven, there's perfect justice, so we fight injustice. In heaven, there's unity, and unity in diversity, right? Mind you, when John sees all those people in heaven, he sees the nations. He, see, he hears the different tongues. So there's unity in heaven in diversity. So we work towards that here on earth. There's healing in heaven. And here on earth, we don't always get yeses. But that's why I still believe in healing prayer. Because there's healing in heaven. We have our resurrection bodies. And God wants us to get a taste of that here on earth. Bottom line, the world needs Jesus and our kingdom work, the work God calls us to do, part of the work, it's not all the work, part of the work is bringing that kingdom here. What does it look like in heaven? Let's work towards it here. And then what's powerful is only now, right, do we get to what we would consider our needs and our petitions. What I like to jump to first thing when I pray. Why? Because it's important to acknowledge who God is before we ask. It's important that your perspective informs your petitions. It's important that you are reminded of your relationships with God and with those people God has placed in your life before you get to your personal petitions. But we do get to give us this day. And again, the pronoun is our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And we can spiritualize this, this idea of bread. We can say, well, Jesus is the bread of life. Or Jesus said that his, his work for the Father that we just talked about, that's his food. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we can't overlook the fact that this is very practical. Right? These are practical prayers, and God cares about those prayers. This recognizes that, hey, we're human beings, physical beings with physical needs, 
And there's no shame in asking God to meet them. There's no shame in me praying every night, hey, God, keep Raj healthy, right? Keep him away from germs in preschool. He cares about that. There's no shame in you asking God to help you fill your fridge so you can feed your family. There's no shame even in asking God to advance your career. There's no shame in these things, right? God cares. There's practical things in life that God wants to show himself in. And look no further than Exodus, right, where God delivers his people. They're journeying through the wilderness, and he gives them manna, right, Daily bread. They said it was is a bread-like substance that came with the dew every morning. And so they would gather it every morning. And it was every morning because God said, hey, only gather enough for that day. And if you didn't, you were in trouble, right, busted. Only gather enough for that day. The perspective he wanted them to develop, the perspective that we need to develop, is that we have daily, moment-by-moment, radical, deep dependence on God. We need God. They would probably would have loved monthly manna, right? They don't have to go out every day to gather it. We would love bulk bread. We want like Sam's Club portions. We don't want to have to go out every day. We want a Sam's Club relationship with God where it doesn't have to be day, day by day. And what happens is, yeah, we go to God once in a while because we try to figure it out on our own and we come to him when there's something really hard or we've jacked up what we tried to do and then we come to God. We try to be self-sufficient. Why? Because our culture celebrates this. But deep down, we're needy. We're dependent. And to break from this and fake it like we can somehow make it, it's what causes so much stress in life, so much worry, so much anxiety. That's why it's powerful here. He says, give us this day, in some translations, today our daily bread. And as he begins to teach on anxiety, which we'll look at next week, it's because we're worrying about tomorrow. Just remember God's goodness today and remember that he never changes. God's good today. He's going to be good tomorrow. And go to, your, go to him. Remind yourself of that day in and day out. Because we're dependent daily. God is good daily. So come to God daily. Go to scripture daily. Pray daily. Be in relationship with God daily. When we don't, it's so often because we've forgotten our dependence on him. Or we've become so self-righteous that we think we're self-sufficient. So we don't go to him when we need to. You know, I'm not perfect, but I try to go to the word and prayer first thing every morning. Why? For many reasons. But number one is just this perspective that, God, I can't make it through this day doing all you've called me to do, having the impact you've called me to have without you, your word, your spirit in my life. I'm dependent on that. The same way I'm dependent on bread. And I've said it before, I can't remember what I read in the Bible or prayed for two Tuesdays ago, but I can't remember what I had for lunch two Tuesdays ago either, yet that sustained me. And God's prayer, or excuse me, my prayer and God's word, it's the same thing. It's our daily bread that sustains us. Don't go without it. Do it daily. Because we need God's grace. And that's the next phrase. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And this speaks to grace. This is God's will being done and his kingdom being coming in our relationships. God's will is that our lives should be defined and marked by grace. Uh, Bob Goff said it on Twitter this week. It's probably in one of his books. Steph read it. She can tell you. Grace is only hard to give if we're keeping score. That's why forgiveness is so powerful, because in the arena of life, it takes down the scoreboard. You're not keeping a tally because you're forgiving. And it's a good thing, because, again, if I'm honest, I've got this uncanny ability to subtract from my wrongs and somehow multiply the wrongs of other people. But thank God, praise God, 
I receive a grace that forgives, a grace that doesn't count my sins against me, but it's not just a grace that forgives us, it's a grace that calls us to extend grace. We're not just called to relish in the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. We're called to relay it in our life and in our relationships. Again, in the teaching last week on do not murder and anger and reconciliation, Jesus says, hey, if you're in worship and you remember you got beef with somebody, go be reconciled. First John, it says, hey, basically your relationship with other people is how you show the world your relationship with God. But it's also a couple things to note. Reconciliation and forgiveness are different because reconciliation, it takes two to tango. Forgiveness, you can forgive somebody that doesn't even know they wronged you. You can forgive somebody that still hates you, but you can still forgive. And two, we're going to be in a series called Myth Busting, the beginning of 2019. And forgive and forget, it's not in the Bible. Uh, sometimes we think it is. But this self-induced amnesia, uh, often people bury their pain, bury offense, cover it thinking they're forgetting it. And that doesn't lead to spiritually mature people. It often leads to emotionally handicapped people, right? I have a past. I have a past. That's reality. But what forgiveness means is I have a past, but my past doesn't have me, right? Sometimes, and sometimes forgiveness doesn't happen like that. Like all of a sudden you're walking in forgiveness. Forgiveness is like so many other things in life. You might say it in a moment, but you walk it out over time. So maybe you say, tonight, I'm not ready to forgive. All right, well, just know that it's a journey. And as you return to this phrase, forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, and we wash ourselves again in this grace again and again, eventually forgiveness and grace will overflow in your life. It's a process. Sometimes it doesn't happen like flipping a switch, but it overflows from us, and it should, because the next phrase speaks to our weakness. That's why we struggle with forgiveness. But it says, lead us not into temptation. And what's important to note is that God doesn't tempt anybody. And if you look at the Greek, Jesus is actually, this word for temptation can also mean testing. So maybe that's what he's talking about. But it's important to note because it's translated like this. God doesn't, this isn't like asking God not to do something he would otherwise do. Like he's out to tempt us. Like, God, please don't tempt me again. Like, please. No, he doesn't do that. It says in James, God tempts nobody. It's like the, the hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Bind my wandering heart to thee. It's been a while since I sang it, right? If you bind your heart to God, he's not going to lead you astray. Because temptation is what drives you from the presence of God, the purposes of his kingdom. But it's also important to realize, look, Adam, the first man, was tempted. Jesus, the second Adam, who was fully human, was tempted. To be tempted is to be human. To be human is to be tempted. It's not a sin. But I think it was... Martin Luther, when he was talking of temptation, he said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can't keep them from building a nest. I probably butchered the quote, but that's it. I don't even know if Martin Luther said it. But we trust God not to lead us into temptation. But the reality is we don't trust ourselves. The writer and theologian Dallas Willard said, this is a vote of no confidence in our ability. And I've said it before, but Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, and their steps, it can teach us a lot. Because in AA, you're well aware of your tendency and the possibility for relapse. But this recognition of the fact that I'm weak doesn't make you more prone to relapse. It actually makes you less prone because you remember, no, I, I need strength. I am weak. I'm, I'm prone to relapse. I need to remember these things. You know, this confession of weakness is so important that Jesus doubles down in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus knew. He's fully human. He understands us as humans. He created us that we're weak. That's usually not our confession. We like to hide our weakness because, again, 
We like to be hallowed and glorified ourselves. But when you can give that up early in your prayer and give up that perspective early on, then you can step into this reality that I'm weak. And that's good news. Because when you're weak, you can go straight to the cross. And there's grace. And God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's not about wallowing in our weakness. It's about going to God because he's strong in our weakness. So we don't hide our weakness, period. <laughs> we don't hide our weakness uh, because we want to be hollow, but don't hide your weakness now either. Bring it to the cross. But, you know, we may be weak, but the last phrase is a powerful reminder that we're still called to warfare. It says, deliver us from the evil one. And what's powerful is this word deliverance or deliver because God delights in deliverance. He delivers his people from bondage. He delivers his people from slavery to sin. He delivers his people from literal slavery in Exodus. But we got to remind ourselves the purpose for the deliverance, why he delivers us, the destiny on the other side of our deliverance. It's not for autonomy. We just went over, I'm dependent, I'm weak. We don't want to govern ourselves. Well, maybe we do, but God knows what's best. What does he say through Moses to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? So they can worship me, so they can know me as king, so they can live under my perfect reign, my perfect rule. God loves to deliver, but it's not so we can go do our thing, so that we can live in relationship worshiping him as king and our deliverer and our redeemer. But God loves to deliver. And this word deliver is almost a violent term. It means to snatch. And that almost brings it full circle to me because this prayer starts with our father, and then it talks about snatching, right? This almost violent grabbing. And uh, anybody who's become a parent can relate. When you become a father, it's like you turn into Neo. Like when your son is falling, he's dropping his pacifier. It's like time slows down to the millionth factor. Ain't no pacifier hitting the ground on my watch. Right? He'll throw his bottle and my handle, like in my peripheral, just grab it. It's like superhuman powers. Dad bod is a real thing. You talk about warfare, you got to declare war on that. But I, I believe dad reflexes are a real thing. Nothing against moms, too. You probably got mom reflexes. It's something I feel like you get as a parent. People see these pictures of me throwing rods 12 feet in the air. They're like, aren't you afraid you're going to drop them? No, I got dad reflexes. Nothing hits the ground on my watch. Pacifiers, bottles, my cell phone, my son. I'm good at snatching things. It's a gift as a father. But we got to realize in that analogy, we're the kid. And Romans 3.23 says we have fallen, not because of, of, of God's lack of love, but because he's given us free will. We've all fallen. And the reality is we can't get up. And the reality is it takes a power stronger than you to deliver you. Praise God for Jesus Christ who delivers us. But you know, my NIV and what we read from tonight says deliver us from the evil one. But other translations translated just deliver us from evil. And I think that's powerful to reflect on too. Because if we truly reflect on ourselves and our lives, there's evil in me. Right? I wrestle with my flesh. People ask, you know, all these different questions that I've, people have asked me, but one is, why doesn't God just get rid of evil? Because there's evil here. He'd be getting rid of me, he'd be getting rid of you. Right? There's brokenness in me. There's brokenness in you. And part of this prayer, deliver me from evil, is deliver me from myself. Deliver me from my flesh. Right? Help me to look more like Jesus than I did yesterday. Again, we'll dig into this in next year in one of the, the sermons, but we so often love to put the blame on the evil one because it lets us off the hook. Like the devil made me do it. No, the devil is content to watch your flesh pin you again and again daily, right? Like you, you got to deal with your flesh, what's in you. 
And if I got the worship team come up, that's not exactly the warmest ending to a prayer. Like, I'm not going to be like, hey, let's all go home. Maybe that's why there's the addition in some translations, right? To his be the glory and the power forever and ever. But in my translation, it says amen, right? <laughs> Deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Again, it's not exactly the warmest ending, but I would remind you tonight, prayer isn't supposed to make us feel more self-sufficient. It's not to make you get up after prayer and be like, all right, I got this. No, in God, in Christ, in his power and my weakness, do I truly have this? In many ways, prayers are a reminder that we're weak and dependent and we're leaning to God again because in him, his, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And it's a reminder that we have a heavenly father that cares for us and provides for us. And one way to look at prayer that I would encourage you is that it creates a space for Jesus to fill. When you look at the entirety of our Christian walk and following Christ, day by day, it's creating space for him to fill. More space so he can have more and more of our lives. It's walking out the, the, the statement of John the Baptist, may I decrease so that he can increase. Day in, day out, making more space for God to have more of me. And one of the ways we do that is through prayer. Walking through these perspectives, we see in the Our Father. So if we could all stand, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use these words that Jesus spoke thousands of years ago that are still surprisingly relevant today as they were then. It's almost as if he's God, right? But God, I pray that you would help us to take an inventory of our heart. God, where maybe we lack intimacy with you. May we see ourselves as one radically loved by God. Again, we're so hungry for identity. And so many identities in life, they apply pressure. Even father, husband, or employee, or, or different roles. You can fail in those roles. God forbid you walk through divorce, or, or losing custody, or losing your job. But the identity we have in sons and daughters, it's not something we can lose. Raj is never going to not be my son anymore, right? God, I pray that you would remind us of our identity in you because the identity of being your son and your daughter it doesn't pressure us as much as it propels us into the work into the purposes you have for us so god i pray that if, if that's the issue god intimacy reminding ourselves our identity in you god remind us tonight of who we are or maybe it's that jesus isn't hollowed in our lives glorified lifted up that jesus has been your homeboy <laughs> you've been living how you want thinking he's just along for the ride i can do what i want and he'll be there for me I pray that you would remind us of this call to be holy as you are holy. That we'd be reminded of that picture in Isaiah. That you are high, you're mighty, you're lifted up, you're holy. Yeah, you want relationship with us, but you call us to be perfect as you're perfect. Or maybe it's we're grappling with apathy. We forget our, our work to renew. We live with this focus on getting to heaven. You're apathetic about God's kingdom coming here. God, I pray that you would awaken us from apathy and sleepwalking. God, when you call us to a purpose every day to bring your heaven, your perfect reign here on earth. Maybe it's dependence and daily bread. We try to live self-sufficient. We try to live independent. And yes, the culture calls us to do that, but spiritually it's like living like a functional atheist, Lord God. God, I pray that you would pull us back into dependence on you. Again, with this picture that when we're weak, you're strong. Again, maybe, maybe the struggles with lead us not to temptation and weakness. We're concealing our addictions, concealing our hurts. We're afraid to bring them to the surface. God, I pray that you would help us walk into accountability with you, with the family of faith. One of the first steps to avoiding relapse is to admit weakness. 
Again, maybe it's just warfare. The same way like renewal, we're sleepwalking. You've called us to be alert because there's an enemy that prowls like a lion. Not that we're to be afraid of him, but we are called to be mindful of him. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's, it's over flesh and blood. There's people out there that we might even see right now as our enemy because we bought into this insidious lie of us versus them. God, you've called us to chase them down and bring them to you. God, help this prayer, help your word, help your Holy Spirit tonight to shift our perspective in each one of these areas. Help us to take an inventory of our heart. God, as we worship, we pray that your Holy Spirit, God, that we become more aware of his presence and what he wants to speak to us, what he wants to say to us. It might be conviction, it might be encouragement. It might be saying, no, you're doing well. Let go of guilt, let go of shame. I don't know what it is, but let's, let's sing this song, Holy Spirit, and ask him to take this word and be what Jesus said he would be, a, a counselor that leads us in all truth. God, make this truth real to us in our hearts. In Jesus' name.